0: His name is listed as Fernando Lizardi. Fernando, that was his name. In his World War II draft card, which I also have, his name is Fred Lizardi. So he Americanized his name, and I knew him as Grandpa Freddie.
1: Welcome to Complexified, where religion and politics collide with real life. I'm Amanda Henderson. As I trace this myth, the American dream, I've been asking how our personal experiences and the stories we've been told shape our understanding of the past and our vision for the future. How do the decisions made by our parents, our grandparents and great grandparents live on in us? Last episode, we heard from Dr. Albert Hernandez, and we learned more about the politics of the Cold War and Cuba that compelled nearly 500,000 people to immigrate from Cuba to the United States. Today, we move to another island caught up in a political paradox, Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico was one of the first islands in the Caribbean colonized by Spain, and then, like Cuba, was taken by the United States after the Spanish-American War in 1898. Today, Puerto Rico is a part of the United States while also being distinct from it. People who live there enjoy citizenship but lack full political representation since they are not a state in the United States. In this episode... Dr. Christina lazardi Hodgeby, professor from Iliff School of Theology, joins us. Dr. Lazardi-Hajbi oversees contextual education and co-directs the Doctor of Ministry in Prophetic Leadership. Her interests include organizational leadership and liberative theological and post-colonial approaches to practical theological education. I met with Dr. Lazardi Hodgeby at our studio at Isle of School of Theology, and I asked her to share about her story as the child of multiple immigrant backgrounds, both Puerto Rican and Italian. We asked, What must one do to gain access to the American dream? What you think of when you hear this phrase, American dream? Yeah,
0: thank you for the question and for the invitation to share a little bit. For me, when I hear the words American dream, I think of a lot of prerequisites that are necessary in order to achieve the American dream. The first would be if you are not Euro American or have a Euro American background, you need to change your name. You need to anglicize your name, both first and last name. I hear don't speak in your native language, in the language that you learned. I also hear that one needs to game the system in order to gain citizenship. But there are only certain people who are allowed to game the system and not get caught doing it. So my story reflects all of those prerequisites because my ancestors played that game and they had to meet that criteria in order for them to have the quote-unquote American dream.
1: So tell me about the story of your family and how they gamed the system and how they wound up here and what that meant for them. So I identify
0: as biracial, recognizing that race is a socially constructed colonial category that has been created by people who are not From my backgrounds, but I am Puerto Rican. My father was Puerto Rican. My mother was Italian. And both of their stories converged in the 1970s in New York City. But before that, uh, and I'll share a little bit about both family origins on both sides, my great grandfather. My Puerto Rican great-grandfather, his name was Asislo, he was born in Puerto Rico, in Calle, which is part of central Puerto Rico. It's in the mountain town of the island. And he was drafted into World War One. And the draft occurred in Puerto Rico because... The Jones-Shafroth Act was created in 1917 to give Puerto Ricans a f- limited form of citizenship, U.S. citizenship. So World War I was happening. They needed men to serve in that war. Puerto Rico was a territory of the United States. It still is a territory of the United States. But that limited form of citizenship, U.S. citizenship, is still in place today. So that that act that came about in 1917 required all Puerto Rican men to sign up for the draft.
1: So citizenship included being signed up for the draft. What does limited citizenship mean? then and now. Does it mean the same thing?
0: It does. So the requirements for citizenship have not changed since that act in 1919. And that includes that Puerto Ricans who live on the island cannot vote in a U.S. presidential election. They can vote, actually, but their votes will not count in a U.S. presidential election, for example. However, yeah. Puerto Ricans who live on the mainland in one of the 50 states, their votes do count.
1: Huh. So it's a very... That's so interesting. It is an but interesting But you can thing. be drafted for war, but you can't vote. Right. <laughs> this so, doesn't <laughs> seem right, but okay. Uh, yeah. Right. Because Puerto
0: Rico is not a state. It doesn't have the same rights as a state. And so governing is this very contested political thing where there are... And there's a long, long history there of corruption and people being appointed to oversee, to govern Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And that even includes as as late as the Obama administration, where Obama wanted to have oversight over Puerto Rico. And there's an element there of self-governance that many Puerto Ricans have been advocating for and protesting about over the entire century and even long before that about what uh, citizenship looks like, what freedom looks like. There's a group of Puerto Ricans who want to become full citizens of the U.S. There's a group who want to be a completely independent country because being a colonial entity has really hampered and decimated the economy of Puerto Rico as well and their poverty and and all of these things. and Plus the hurricanes and the limited aid that the island receives as a result of that we don't get the same aid as states all of that kind of stuff so all of that resulted in <laughs> in that long history my great grandfather having to sign up for the draft in 1918 for world war 1 and he served in world war 1 in 1919 my grandfather who was 9 years old at the time and his older brother and his mother and his aunt boarded a ship called the Grecian in San Juan, Puerto Rico in 1919. And they took a three day trip to Ellis Island and they moved to Manhattan. And so by doing that, they became mainlanders, which is a story of many Puerto Ricans. Many Puerto Ricans go back and forth, but they created their home in New York City. And there's a long history, too, of military service that lives past my great-grandfather. So my grandfather was drafted for World War II, and so he served in World War II. My uncle served in the Korean War. And when you, and there's a, there is a high rate of military service, not only in Latino communities, but also in Native American communities, right? But there's, there's an aspect of labor there and how that has become a source of pride for certain Latinos and certain families, but is also met with a question of, well, what are the limits of this American dream? Like, am I really a citizen? What am I fighting for? hmm. If I'm not even treated as fully human or or fully American in my own state, in my own city, on my own land. Right. So lots of questions there. But but my grandfather served in, in World War II, And it's interesting because I have the records. I have the boat records for he and his mother and his brother an aunt boarding the Grecian in 1919. And his name is listed, listed as Fernando Lizardi. Fernando, that was his name. In his World War II draft card, which I also have, his name is Fred Lizardi. So he Americanized his name. And I knew him as Grandpa Freddy. And he spoke only English. So my father grew up in a home where speaking Spanish did not gain you credibility toward being fully American. And this was in the 1940s, 40s and 50s. So speaking Spanish was an impediment. And so they did not want to pass that on to their children, to my, my dad or my uncle. Another interesting thing on the boat roster in 1919 was that their name was typed up as Lisardi L I Z A R D Y That is not the name on their birth certificates and it's not the name they were given. Their name was Lisardi with an i at the end. And so their name became anglicized. Now perhaps that was a decision on the part of my great-grandmother who wanted to have them fit in more once they got to the mainland which is to- a totally acceptable kind of thing at the time. You know, you ang- you try to make your name less ethnic, quote unquote. Yes. And so my last name is Lissardi with a Y. Mm. That is the anglicized version of my name, of my last name. And that came as a result of that change on the boat and the list for the roster for the boat. So... That's what I mean when I say the American yes. dream has prerequisites. Yeah. You have to change your name.
1: Yeah. Do you? Um, were you ever able to talk to them about that? So I was not because my
0: grandparents, at least my Puerto Rican grandparents, died before I was born.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And my father passed away 25 years ago now.
1: Oh, wow. And so what
0: I have are these records, the records. and the stories yeah. that my father
1: would tell me, although they are quite limited. I I wonder, I guess, what it would have felt like to be coming to a new place and wanting to be able to have a life and and be able to work and start a family and to be able to do that as you said, there are these barriers that they they had to jump through. And and I, I wonder what that felt like for them.
0: Yeah, I, I wonder as well. I have a cousin that I've spoken with who actually just a couple of years ago sent me my grandfather's public school records. She had some of his public his public school enrollment Right, and it talks about how he's he's not an English speaker; he's a Spanish speaker, and and Fernando was his name on his public school record in New York City. And I, I wonder about that. You know, he had to learn he had to learn English. He had to, and English was spoken in Puerto Rico. You know, at that time, as a territory of the United States, but but it wasn't systematized in the way it is now in terms of of Puerto Rican education and. And identity, most folks are are fully bilingual, English and Spanish now, but it not in those days. And so it, it's really interesting. I wonder as a child going into the massive public school system in New York City in the Bronx and what that was like. I mean, he lived in Spanish Harlem, just with every other Puerto Rican <laughs> and Cuban uh in those in those decades. And so I I I often wonder about that, what that was like for him and what that was like for my dad as a first generation mainland born Puerto Rican right and he grew up in that era as
1: well and and yeah i always wonder about that and so then he, your mom is italian yes and so how did they meet and how did their stories of where they're from uh, this this ancestry intersect that's a great question i I think they had a lot of
0: commonalities. they both came from immigrant parents mm-hmm. and so being in that in between generation I know was was quite difficult for both of them. So my grandmother and my grandfather they on the Italian side, they met in New York City, so they had both come from Italy to New York City. The wave of Italian immigrants to the United States in in the early part of the 20th century is one of the largest voluntary emigrations in world history. Mm. I say voluntary because it was voluntary. We -hmm. can think of other populations that were not voluntary, right? Yeah. Especially coming here to the United States. And so they met and they got married. And for them, citizenship, meant gaming the system. And at that time, Italians weren't necessarily considered white. They became white over time. Very much.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm doing work on the 1965 Immigration Act. And one of the things that's been the most fascinating to me is how vocal the Italian groups were in italian lobbies and advocates it was really about italian immigrants because they were so excluded and discriminated against for so long as being not seen as white western european in the same ways that german or people from great britain
0: yes and because of all that advocacy that's how they became White and and there were so many of them. Right, mm-hmm. one of the largest yep. immigrations in world history that was voluntary, and so there was a huge movement there. Before that, however, before they were considered white, my grandparents on my mother's side were extremely poor. They worked construction. My grandmother sewed names into rich kids' underwear and mm-hmm. clothing as as part of her work, and. So they ended up gaming the system in order to become United States citizens. Yeah. What do you mean by that? So in those days, there was no written citizenship test. Written citizenship tests are are a very recent phenomenon. Most citizenship tests happened orally and they happened locally with a local judge, a local magistrate. And there were lots of issues there, as you can imagine. A judge would ask really bizarre bogus difficult questions to try to bar people from becoming citizens and eventually there was some federal legislation especially in the 40s and 50s around you know what kinds of questions can can a judge or a magistrate ask and and how does that work and even though there were those federal guidelines citizenship really happened at a local regional level through oral examination mm. and so in those days what you could do to game the system was to pay someone else to take your citizenship test for you and to be you so th- <laughs> <laughs> and this was really important if you couldn't speak english well and could not understand english and for yeah. both of my italian grandparents they could not speak or understand english well and my grandmother she was the only living grandparent that i ever met and that i ever knew she lived mm-hmm. with us till hmm. I was nine and she passed away when I was nine. Yeah. But I had a very difficult time communicating with her because she didn't speak English. Yeah. And so we would do things together. But she I think she understood more English than she let on. But she was not a fluent English speaker. She spoke Italian. And my mother spoke to her in Italian. Yeah. And so it's really fascinating because most people think, well, oh illegal immigration you know it's brown people who are doing it or you know it's latinos who are trying to get in and and game the system and get in you know through the southern border and and all of this stuff and it's really <laughs> it's really fascinating because it's my european yeah. ancestors who did the gaming yeah. <laughs> of the system so there's there's all these different kind of nuances based on race and racial categorization based on who one is and yeah. it's fascinating because my grandpa Freddie, my Puerto Rican grandfather's World War II draft card, they have a list of complexions, so they they have races, so there are are five races: white, Negro, oriental, Indian, and Filipino. Those are the five races in the nineteen. interesting. Uh-huh. And the complexions, so sallow, which some of these words just are not used anymore. Light, ruddy, dark, freckled, light brown, dark brown, and black. And my grandfather is listed as ruddy, and I had to look up ruddy. Huh. because I don't know what that means. R-U-D-D-Y. Right. Like a
1: reddish? is
0: Yes. Yeah, so it it is like a <laughs> reddish person, <Q>. uh-huh. <laughs> which I found wow. fascinating. But those are, I mean, just to look at those racial categories in 1940 on the World War II draft card and the right. complexion categories, which were separate
1: from these five racial categories. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. So fascinating. So, This was a lot of effort for both sides of your family, the Puerto Rican side and the Italian side, both jumped through a lot of hoops, you know, between either taking a ship from Puerto Rico to Ellis Island or coming from Italy and gaming the system and doing what they had to do to be able to be in the United States. Do you know what drew them here? Why did they go through so much to come to the United States.
0: Yeah, I imagine it's because of the myth of the American dream. My grandparents on the Italian side and their names were Rose Mastro Giacomo was her maiden name. And my my grandfather's name was Giuseppe Ciccioni.
1: Very Italian. Very
0: yeah. Italian uh, <laughs> names. Sicconi uh, in the anglicized version. So Siccone. Mm. Master Giacomo's the anglicized version of of my my grandmother's maiden name. they grew up and are from a region called Andretta in southern Italy, a mountainous region which I imagine there's a lot of poverty, and they came from a poor family. They had already had relatives who had come here and so had other family that they could stay with when coming here and then when they had their own home, they were able to then serve as a boarding house for other immigrants. And so my grandparents actually ran a boarding house and my mother grew up in a kind of boarding house style. You know, they had people coming in and out of their home who would stay for a little bit. And then once they got on their feet, they would be taken care of. And so I imagine it's for the same reason that most other Italian immigrants came here on that side and Puerto Rican immigrants, right, or emigrants, em- because, they're, you know, it's technically the same country, the United mm-hmm. States, except there's different rules in Puerto Rico. So coming for a better life. And my great, great grandmother was already in Manhattan. She was already living in New York City. And so my great grandmother brought her children there to raise them to raise my grandfather and my great uncle because my great grandfather was divorced. I don't know if I don't know if they were ever married, but they were but certainly they weren't she was not with my great grandfather. My great grandmother and my great grandfather were separated. And so as a result of that, I think it was for opportunity economically but also culturally for their children and who
1: would become their children. You clearly have a lot of the actual artifacts and in the memories around these stories. How were these stories passed on to you? Sometimes I think about the ways our family stories are told to us are as interesting as our family stories themselves. So how have you received these stories?
0: I've had to do a lot of digging because in my family, there's not a lot of generational overlap. So both of my parents are deceased and I heard a lot of stories from them. And so a lot of it is memory. And I don't know if those things are factually true, right? They were told to me by my parents. So I don't, I don't have factual backup to my mother telling me that my grandparents paid other people to take the citizenship test and oath in front of a judge because I've not been able to find much information about that in archival records. But that's what I was told. That's the narrative that my mother told me. On my father's side, I have a lot of the historical documentation as a result of my father's cousins who have done a lot of that genealogical research, but also my own digging and my own learning about who my grandparents were and some of that information, but also from cousins and from other relatives who have bits and pieces of those narratives. And as I said, my cousin sent me some documents related to my grandfather that I had never seen before, his public school records, his military discharge record, those sorts of things that I had not seen before and known before because I didn't know these people personally. I didn't know my grandparents personally, except for one. And that's a huge generational loss. So I would say that the American dream for me also includes loss. I mean, mm. and and not just loss of name, loss of language. And by the way, my grandmother clearly spent Italian was the only language she spoke. My mother's first language was Italian. She had to go to school to learn English. And she would be struck over the hand every time she spoke Italian in school. So she, she had to learn by physical force not to speak Italian in school. That's how she learned English, my mother. And as a result of that, we never learned those languages. My brother and I, we were never taught Italian. We were never taught that language in order to communicate with my grandmother or anybody. When my mother mm. spoke on the phone to relatives, it was always in Italian. But we were not to learn that language because my parents wanted better for us. Yeah. And that is the sad legacy of yeah. the American dream that those yeah. things become losses and mm-hmm. And now it's fascinating because multilingualism is not only a sign of intelligence it's a it's a sign of retaining who we are in our rich history and culture and it is something that that colonial culture as a whole that North Americans want right they want to learn about other cultures they want to gain other languages euro dominant peoples want that right but the irony is that it's been such the case that we've lost that. Mm
1: -hmm. We've lost
0: that through Euro domination.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's another piece (laughs) of that extraction (laughs) is extracting the language from those who that is their um, first language. And then it is taken. Exactly. What was the role of religion in your uh, family story, both of these immigrant communities and upbringing?
0: So my parents and their parents, were raised Catholic. So Roman Catholicism is what has permeated my family history and who we were. And I was baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, fully intending to be Catholic. That's just, and that was the commonality between my parents. Both raised Catholic, came from Catholic households. We're going to raise us as Catholic as well. I have
1: godparents who I'm very close
0: to, and, and it's pretty
1: common for immigrant communities too. A lot absolutely. of, the, especially Italian immigrants, and that was one of the reasons why people were suspicious of them.
0: Exactly. Um, <laughs> right. This this deep Catholicism, and I have my grandmother's rosary. I have both grandmothers' rosaries. Uh, oh wow. as, as legacies, and I remember my my Italian grandmother rose. She had this. She kept the rosary in her hand most of the time, and I have that. I have that rosary as well. When I was six months old. My dad went to a Nikki Cruz revival. Nicky Cruz was this former gang member in New York City, and he became saved. (sighs) Jesus came into his life, and he went to a revival, and he was saved. And thus became our journey to be Protestants.
1: (laughs) Interesting. And so I
0: was raised as a Pentecostal, charismatic, Protestant Christian as was my brother. And so my dad embraced charismatic faith, Pentecostal faith. We attended a non-denominational church growing up. And my mother sort of just became a religious, like she wasn't not Christian or not spiritual. She just sort of, she never went to church with us. My dad took responsibility for our spiritual education and our, and our religious lives. And Yeah, went to a non-denominational Christian school for a while. Then we went to a Catholic school. I went to a Catholic school for a while, and then ended up in public school. But it wasn't that we rejected Catholicism because culturally we're Catholic. But but that was the direction that my my dad's faith went, and so he wanted his children to have that faith. And so I believe I I don't know if I'm the only Protestant or not. I but my cousins certainly are not, and and they it's a very strange concept for them for for me to be not catholic.
1: <laughs> yeah. Do you know how that played out in their identity of being american and catholic or protestant? How did they experience that or or navigate that space? Yeah,
0: I don't I don't know. I imagine that I think the move toward protestantism further solidified the becoming American narrative. So to be fully American, right, Protestantism, sort of rebellion, freedom from tyranny, you know, Catholic tyranny or Church of England, all all of that kind of stuff became one aspect of that achievement of the American dream. It meant in some respects, a better education. It meant access to particular kinds of circles and opportunities that that perhaps were open to me and to my brother at the time. And I imagine there is a racialized element to that as well. So interestingly, we grew up in Southern Colorado. So can you imagine Mm. Puerto Rican, Italian children growing up in a Chicano environment? Yeah. And and so (laughs) it's very, it's, it's really fascinating to think, how did I survive all of that in all those different contexts? (laughs) But growing up in that, I mean, most folks who were Catholic were Latino, you know, and so I think. Most folks who were traditionally Protestant or non-denominational were not. They were more white. And so what does that look like? Because Latinos are most associated with Catholicism because lots of Latinos are Catholic. We were not. And so that was just one more racialized aspect in some ways. And in in that area still continues to be highly uh, Catholic. Although I mean there are there are significant pockets of Protestants in in southern Colorado, northern New Mexico who are Latino, but but it's fascinating to think about how that contributed to the furthering of this quote unquote American dream to actually change one's tradition or faith in order to belong or to fit in to a greater extent to this idealized Americanism. Yeah.
1: Now you are a scholar and a professor, and you have clearly learned a lot about our history and the ways that we see ourselves and others. How does your family story and these multiple identities shape the work that you do and the way that you live your life today, hmm. and the way you live your American dream, or the way you dream about? the future
0: yeah i've come to understand my own work and my own identity not only as a scholar but also as an ordained minister mm. in a protestant denomination not different from the one that i grew up in and as just a human being in the world who is searching for purpose and meaning as a misfit But as a misfit who sees multiple perspectives and angles and works to create connections between differences. And that's because of who I am, both as a biracial Puerto Rican Italian woman, um, but also because the journey that my ancestors took and that I take with them as a part of continuing that legacy of not quite fitting Right, my parents yeah. were this not quite fitting generation that were their parents hoped for them the best of the American dream, mm. and in some ways, my parents fell into that myth of the American dream, and in some ways they rebelled against that. They were also hippies and children of the sixties, and yeah, that's why they moved to the middle of nowhere, they wanted to farm and move out of New York City and mm. they moved to southern Colorado and to to be different from their families of origin, and they wanted us to continue that legacy by getting an education, by becoming successful in a way that none of our ancestors had done before. In some ways, that has just made us a family that doesn't always quite fit, right? (laughs) (laughs) So growing up in different cultural contexts than who I am, and, and, you know, it's just, it's fascinating to think about. But someone who is a connector, creator of a misfit of multiplicities,
1: I'd like to say. I love it. I love it. That's so good. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your story and your vision. And this was wonderful.
0: Thanks for having me. It was great to share.
1: Throughout this series, Dreaming America on Complexified, We've been traveling through the stories of those who find themselves living together here in the United States. We've been listening and hearing stories and thinking about our own past and the ways that those stories live in us today. How we remember those stories and share those stories shapes how we imagine our future Thank you for coming with me through these episodes and embracing your own curiosity and sharing your own stories with us. We're going to have a little break for the holidays, and then we will be jumping back in in 2024 with a new series and an exciting new partnership. In 2024, Complexified will be joining Religion News Service, and we will continue our process of growing and evolving. Thank you for being a part of this movement to let go of simple answers and embrace the complexity of real life. I can't wait to share the next phase of our adventure together. Thanks for joining us. Check out our website at complexified.org and sign up for our monthly newsletter to continue the conversation. If anything inspired you or sparked your curiosity, Please share us with a friend. And don't forget to like and subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Complexified comes to you from the Institute for Religion, Politics, and Culture at Iliff School of Theology. Working hard behind the scenes is our student intern, Josh Perez. Thanks to our sound engineer, Jasmine Hunjin, and the team at Podcast Allies. I'm Amanda Henderson.